lockdowns, stranded containers, ships waiting several weeks for slots outside the world's biggest ports, and empty shelves in the retail business. This was the scenario in global trade during the pandemic, when record consumer demand overwhelmed supply chain capacity and pushed them beyond their limits. Now, with COVID-19 almost a distant memory, we are in the aftermath of the disruption that shook global trade and changed the way we think of our supply chains and security of supply. But what permanent changes and shifts in sourcing patterns are happening right now? This episode examines the changes in Southeast Asia and China, commonly known as the world's factory. This is Beyond the Box, integrated logistics from the inside out. Welcome to the first episode of Beyond the Box. My name is Gyrit Cecilia Ross. And my name is Jonathan Ruying Larsen. Together with mass colleagues and external industry experts, we hope to provide as many of you who'd ever bother listening to a supply chain podcast with just the right amount of interesting topics and industry insight. Realistically, we'll probably also provide you with wasteful minutes of Jonathan and I talking nonsense. I will, without a doubt, accidentally swear and go down a path of hopeless banter. <laughs> and I'm already on one now. So Jonathan, save me. What are we talking about today? I will definitely try. I mean, today's topic is how COVID-19 disrupted global trade and how the supply chains and sourcing patterns are changing as we speak right now. So uh, to help us understand this, we've spoken to leading shipping expert Lars Jensen. Uh, he is the founder and partner in Vespucci Maritime. And of course, Anna-Sophie Isalan-Karsten, uh, she's head of operations for Asia Pacific here in Mosk. But before we talk integrated logistics now, post-pandemic, let's perhaps just touch upon why or how it changed. I mean, when everybody else was working from home or struggling to keep busy or business afloat even, this industry was booming mm. to an extent where it at times actually couldn't keep up. And that might make a person or two wonder why. Definitely. I wasn't in the industry back then, but my brothers were and are. And um, I remember them telling me how crazy the container market and prices were. Um, <laughs> and my annoying little sister response was, why? Because we're all buying TVs and fitness equipment. Turns out, yes. Mm. I read that in Denmark, the sale of electronics went up with 60% in 2020 compared to 2019. And in the US, TVs alone went up 56%. It's absolutely crazy numbers. And I remember during the first lockdown, I also went uh, bunkers buying uh, stuff online. I mean, uh, the most notable being a Lego mode model of Old Trafford, the home ground of my favorite football team, Man United. Uh, I even bought a monthly subscription of uh, craft beer delivered right to my front door and to the much en enjoyment of my wife, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just love how you always get... You know, you always find a way to sneak football yeah. and beer in when we when we talk, you want to tell me. Yeah, you know, you know how it is with me. And uh, what about you, Gert? Oh, I'm so basic. Um, and by that, <laughs> I mean, I did what everybody else did. Um, like general spending rose by more than 20% in 2020, particularly on books, cosmetics, clothing and groceries. 26% on building materials, garden stuff tools, paint, mm. and so on. Yes, I did a little bit of research. <laughs> um, and I was, without a doubt, 
Bob the Builder by day, luxury spa meets book club by night. <laughs> my back was out, yeah, but my face looked 25. Let's move on to uh, what it's really about this uh, this episode. Uh, we've now established the fundamentals. Buy more stuff, ship more stuff. Exactly. So let's take it up a notch. Ship so much stuff that the supply chain comes under severe pressure and potentially, eventually, breaks. What a cliffhanger. But the increase in demand did challenge the supply chain. At a point, there'd be more than six weeks of waiting time outside the port of Los Angeles in the US and in Ningbo, China, due to congestion issues and COVID outbreaks among truck drivers and port workers. Mm. Merck and Reuters have created a white paper discussing a generational shift in sourcing strategies with quantitative data around trends. One interesting fact that I will highlight here was that 67% of retailers and manufacturers say that supply chain disruptions have changed the way they source materials. It is fair to say that the supply chains have moved into a sea suit matter in all companies across the world. Yeah, and it really picked up pace when the US and China started imposing tariffs on each other um, a handful of years ago. If you think about it, that's now six years straight with disruptions trade barriers in the Asia-Pacific region, a pandemic, a war on European soil and economic uncertainty for many consumers with the soaring inflation in the US and Europe. What a time to be alive, eh? Companies uh, were already starting to produce and ship from different hubs to spread their risk before the COVID-19. But enough with the past. Let's look to the future and find out how years of disruptions have changed the industry, or should I say the mindset of the industry. Beyond the Box met with two experts on supply chain patterns, Lars Jensen, founder and partner at Vespucci Maritime, and Anna-Sophie Sarland-Karlsen, who's the head of operations in the Asia-Pacific region at Mask. The pair discussed how moving parts of manufacturing out of China had already begun before COVID-19 and how the pandemic impacted that development. I think in many ways it's just accelerated a trend that was already there. I mean, if you look at over the last 10 years or so, manufacturing cost in China has increased significantly, um, which have made companies who predominantly produce in China look for alternatives from a cost angle. And it's clear over the last couple of years, even before the pandemic, there trade tensions were starting right between uh, especially uh, Asia and, and, and or China and the US, which accelerated it. And even more so than during the pandemic, I think China plus one, where obviously shipping in and out of China has been has been at times tested quite significantly, has become a very large thing. But I actually think that China plus one is what we all talk about. But what the pandemic, I think, taught a lot of companies was that it's actually about de-risking supply chains. So um, I would argue that there's also something called a Europe plus one strategy or even a, an America's plus one strategy mm. if you're only located in one place. So this is about sourcing patterns and trying to de-risk that you're not dependent on one origin or one sourcing uh, country simply because yeah, the pandemic taught us uh, in, in bad ways that that can be very risky. First of all, China plus one. It's less like a wedding invitation and more a term for countries bordering to China or in near proximity. 
Exactly. And this is why we're currently seeing an enhanced focus on the potential and pitfalls of countries such as Vietnam, India, Bangladesh mm. and China. Mm, yeah, but why aren't we just using the term, I don't know, Asia? <laughs> I mean, I suppose in, in many ways we could, uh, but we also have to bear in mind that some companies in Europe and the US are considering moving part of their production even closer to the home markets, also known as nearshoring. So this was especially a hot topic during the first lockdown when we lacked protective equipment such as hand sanitizers, masks. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, it's a distant memory for yeah, me. Yeah, distant memory. I mean, I think <laughs> for me personally, it took like a month before I got uh, some hand sanitizer. It was really frustrating. Mm. Anyways, <laughs> since then, the issues with nearshoring has pretty much stopped the idea of rolling back production from China and Asia to Europe and the US. I mean, China and its neighboring countries have been the world's factory for the past of two or three decades, which means that the infrastructure, labor market and legislation have worked around this. I mean, it would be an extremely costly and long-lasting process to turn it all back now. So let's hear how Lars Jensen continues this discussion. I'm very much uh, along the same lines. Uh, Part of it is cost-driven. Part of it is down to demography. Where do you find the labor force necessary? So the pandemic probably stopped that for a while while everybody was finding out and trying to find their feet. How do we deal with all the pandemic disruptions. Now the challenge faced by the shippers is going to be slightly different because you can't have a stampede out of China. There is a clear limit as to how rapidly that can go. But the other thing is, and that's what I've been advising a lot of shippers on, if you move some of your production away from China to say India or Southeast Asia, look carefully at where you move it to because the port and hinterland infrastructure in the rest of Asia is not yet geared for this. So unless you want to run into a new bottleneck issue, don't just look at where can you get cheap labor force, but where will you have access to port infrastructure, logistics infrastructure that is not constrained. Say something like Cambodia, there is a very, very big problem where, where the road system is very, very limited. Um, Vietnam and India, it might be a little better, but it's not a lot better. So again, if you compare to a China, then it just has a very, very long way to go. And uh, as you as you will see more production move there, it will, as it stands right now, you know, there's there's larger risks of uh, of congestion, meaning again, you know, larger risks of uh, of disruptions to uh, to supply chains. Okay, so companies have been talking about this for a decade, right? And now that companies are starting to really act on it, it's dawning on them how extremely competitive the infrastructure and capacity in China is and how much work still needs to be done elsewhere in the region to even begin to match China. Our two experts also discussed exactly how big a task that is and how much South and Southeast Asia are still lacking in order to take over parts of the manufacturing. This isn't something that's going to happen over a two to three year period. This will be a slow, gradual move simply because it's not possible. So seven out of the 10 largest ports in the world, they are on the east coast of China. Um, If China was to reduce output by 10%, Southeast Asia, including India, would have to increase by 100. So it's it, it's it's something that will take quite a long time, both in terms of actually production capabilities, but much more around the ports, right? So I agree very much that <clears throat> customers who are looking at this, they are looking very much at what is actually the, the infrastructure around it. And I would say that the, uh, in the years to come, I think that's the biggest question. How much can you actually ramp up investments in, in Southeast Asia and in, in, in India to be able to support this uh, additional output? 
terminal capacity especially is something that I have a question mark around in the in the nearer or, or medium term. I think we need to distinguish a bit between what are near-term issues being the next 12 to 24 months and what are issues when you get further beyond. In the next 12 to 24 months, one of the issues you're going to come up against is not just constraints in the port infrastructure, but we also have a relatively lopsided fleet. Uh, where a lot of the small vessels that will be needed in Southeast Asia for feedering purposes, they also tend to be very old vessels. They're the ones that some of them are going to be scrapped. Some of them are going to have to slow steam because of a lot of the new environmental regulations. And yes, the industry has a massive order book, but that's lopsided towards the big vessels. Mm. That's not going to help. So there might be in the very short term a shortage when it comes specifically to the feeder segment. Slightly longer term, I expect we will see more new, small, efficient vessels be ordered, but they're not going to be delivered until 25 or 26. Uh, on top of that, if I can just add to last what you said before, this is not about the hinterland, but it's more about the feeder point, right? So a lot of customers today, they will say that they prefer a direct product. So China today, right, has the most number of direct services uh, calls in and out. Um, and as, as that will simply not be possible uh, in, uh, in, in especially Southeast Asia. Um, but that actually, speaking from a carrier angle, is a very exciting opportunity mm. when you work in uh, delivery on operations, as I do, because it's all about figuring out how we make transshipment a non-issue for our customers. And to me, to be able to support the market that's shifting as what we're seeing right now, that will actually be the challenge for the carriers. How do you make transshipment a non-event? So I actually read an article in a Danish newspaper, Börsen, I think just last week. It tapped into what our experts are talking about, that the dominant vessels being ordered are the ones transporting between 12,000 and 17,000 containers. In other words, not the biggest ones. This so um, ships can enter more harbors in Southeast Asia. Yeah, I mean, we're in a large scale moving away from the mega vessels, also known as the triple E class that the shipping industry ordered in the years leading up to the financial crisis. Mm, yeah, but still, I just feel like buying smaller ships can't be the only solution. I mean, no, definitely not. We live in a complex world and an ever-changing industry. So uh, let's hear from our experts one more time. You could make the case and say, let's take an example, India. I mean, India has enormous growth potential, but it's held back by a lack of good hinterland infrastructure. And the easiest thing in the world would be to make the case it's in the Indian government's own self-interest to build this out. The problem is, if you want to wait for that... You you might wait for a very, very long time. That's where it might be in the self-interest of a lot of the logistics providers out there to put in the investment capital and not wait for the government to step in. Yeah, I fully agree to that. But I actually think it's it's a little bit of everything. There is a governmental role in this. Mm-hmm. That's definitely some for the, the logistics, and that's definitely something for uh, terminal operators as well. So I actually think it's the entire ecosystem that uh, that will re- be required to make investments to uh, to, to support this. And one thing that's also maybe important to note, I mean, I think it's worth to be very optimistic in terms of India's, um, how India is building out their their infrastructure when it comes to logistics. I mean, they abolished the cabotage regulation a few years ago. They are beginning to make their ports more efficient. We are beginning to see now some direct services go into main ports in India. So I think you're going to see an India that becomes much better connected in the coming years, not just with feedering, but also direct services. With that added efficiency, you will also get an increased willingness to invest more in the hinterland infrastructure. Also from Indian companies themselves that will very quickly find 
it becomes expensive to build and operate manufacturing plants close to the ports. They might want to move further inland to also draw on the labor force in there. I suppose that is truly integrated logistics. If companies start to build railroads and general infrastructure in countries like Cambodia and such, do you think that will happen? It's actually already happening, right? Well, I mean, I do know that the APM terminal Pipavav in India received the first full block train last year. And in general, it's pretty well connected to the northwest hinterland by rail. It was also the first port in India to receive double stacked container trains back in 2006. But is it enough? I mean, it's really fascinating stuff and I think only time will tell. But I mean, that's definitely the development being discussed these days, uh, which is highlighted by leading shipping expert Lars Jensen, founder and partner in Vespucci Maritime, and Anna-Sophie Salan Carlsen, head of operations for Asia Pacific in Maersk. So, what I gather from this episode is that we are seeing a shift from having all production sourced in one country toward a more flexible setup. In other words, companies are working on de-risking their supply chains to prevent a repeat of the scenario during the pandemic with empty shelves and stocks. Whilst the idea of nearshoring has faded, like we saw in the beginning of the pandemic, China Plus One is very much alive and happening as we speak. All right, this was the first episode of Beyond the Box, but we're already working on the next episode, so do subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, Spotify, Google, Apple, whatever rocks your boat. We greatly appreciate it. And with that, thanks so much for listening. Are we done already? We are done already, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Time flies, I guess. Yeah, you, you just have to state your name now and then people can get on with their lives. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. My name is Jonathan Ruing Larsen. And I'm good, Cecilia Ross. It's been a pleasure. Also, thank you to our colleague Anders Nørgaard, who was our reporter in the field for this episode. And last but not least, our producer, Morten Butler. Mm-hmm.